One of the things I hear in my interviews with Black elders about their relationships to land is that land is a way of knitting people together in relationships of ongoing care and intergenerational obligation to each other. Home with Growing Older is a nonprofit organization which believes in peer learning and creating discussions which bring the lens of aging to a variety of topics. At Home with Growing Older is proud to be your host of At Home on Air, a radio hour offering connection, community, and knowledge to our participants remotely. Now, we invite you to listen and learn from this live recorded episode of At Home on Air. Welcome, everybody. Thank you for joining us. I am Susie Stadler, an architect and executive director of At Home with Growing Older. I'm also the producer of this program, At Home on Air. For us, the meaning of being at home is twofold. First, it refers to how we can live and thrive in our home environments. And second, how we can learn to feel at home with growing older in our wider communities and within ourselves. This conversation with Mistinget Smith, writer and founder of the Black Land Project, will address both of these aspects. She will explore with us the relationship to urban land and place in the Black community and how it nurtures and sustains the lives of older Black Americans, and offers a legacy of well-being to people of all ages. Welcome, Ms. Dinget. It's wonderful it's, to have you. It is such a pleasure to be here with you. We have been looking forward to that. And now let's indulge in a conversation with Ms. Dinget. Ms. Dinget, a quote from your work struck me a place where nobody can make me move, a place where I belong, a place where me and my people can gather. I think it's a great start to give us a little bit for an introduction to the Black Land Project and how this quote relates to the seductive world of wildness, which we chose as the title for tonight's conversation, Wildness in Healthy Aging. Thank you. I started something called the Black Land Project about 12 years ago, entirely by accident. I was on a tour listening to people talk about their relationship to their land in a town in Alabama. And I was with some other people and we realized that the way that folks were describing their relationship to land didn't fall in any of the categories that we were used to thinking in. We thought, well, it would be agricultural or it would be about property rights. But instead, people were self-defining their relationship to land in really different ways. And that boiled down to the place that nobody can tell me I have to get off of, the place where I get to belong and decide who belongs there with me. And as a result, I started listening to more people and asking people to share their stories with me about their relationship to land. I have gathered scores of stories from folks, mostly across the middle of the country. And for African-Americans, those are places people from the Great Migration landed. And so I went back to the places they came from in the South and the Eastern Seaboard to do some interviews as well. When Susie and I had a conversation, I thought I can go back and look just for the patterns and stories that were told to me by older people and look for what eldering advice they have for me in them. And so I'm really excited to talk with you about that today. Misty Geddon, you gathered some really great wisdom and pearls from this conversation with Black elders. Can you share some of them? Yes. So one of the things I want to say about growing older as someone who 
grew up in a very traditionally African-American family and place is that eldering is not just the act of getting older. It's a responsibility. And one of the ways you fulfill that responsibility is to be able to thoughtfully communicate what you've learned from the choices you've made in your life. And so that shows up in some of the stories that I wanna share with you. The Black Land Project is after all made up of stories. And one of the stories that affected me most profoundly was the story that was told to me by Ms. Virginia Hutchins of Flint, Michigan. She started out by saying, I do not care for the company of other people. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is not gonna go well. <laughs> but Mrs. Hutchins told me a story about being a very isolated and unhappy person for much of her life. And that when she finally got a home where she had a yard, a little front yard, she found happiness in growing flowers. Now, often when people think about Black relationships to land, they immediately go to gardening. But it is not the gardening that is the source of wisdom here. She loved her garden rather than people. She had photo albums full of photographs <laughs> of her flowers. And her flowers eventually grew up the fence along the side of her house and kind of trellised themselves there her neighbors started to notice her flowers and ask her questions about her flowers. And she was kind of hesitant about it, but people then came to ask her advice about how to grow flowers against their own fence. And those became relationships and she became trellised by those relationships. And so her house was broken into by a burglar who then set her house on fire and she made a determination that she was not going to leave her home when the insurance company said that they wouldn't give her much money for it. And those neighbors who knew her only as the flower lady look out for her and make sure that she doesn't get run out of her home and that no one else victimizes her home because that is her land, her place where she gets to stand, where no one can tell her that she needs to move. And for her, her relationship to land was about the creation of beauty, the creation mm -hmm. of connection, and the creation of safety. So when we think about relationships to land as labor relationships or productive relationships, we sometimes forget these relationships to land. And for Black people who often have a history of having forced relationships to land, to choose to cultivate relationships of beauty and tradition and community are the essential definition of relationship. Yeah, it struck me, you know, what you said about building community, it was sort of a byproduct. That's not what she intended to do, but that's what happened. Is this part of sort of wildness? I'm coming back to this. I'm so stuck on this world wildness. I just love it. <laughs> I've done a lot of thinking and work about the idea of Black people's relationship to land and wildness. And one of the things I have learned through studying history and also listening to stories of Black people who live in um, uncultivated areas is that for Black people, what we call wildness, you know, the wilderness, is often places where Black people's residences hold the margin between what is wild and what is city or what is town. Black people often inhabit that margin. So what it means to be wild or to go out in the wilderness means something really different when you are actually the boundary between what is wild and what is not. There's a, an African-American spiritual that says, go into the wilderness as a path for people to find spiritual clarity. And what I have found in listening to these stories is that relationships to land, including urban land, is a way of finding spiritual clarity, of being in the wild, even if the wild is in New York City. Yes. And I feel like being in the wild becomes even more important as you grow older, when often your opportunity for self-determination 
falls away. So this kind of refuge of wildness is the place to go. This land is the place to go. Another aspect was also this notion of land as memory and Toni Morrison's term rememory and caring for land is about maintaining memory, which is also part of the growing old experience. It's not only part of the growing old experience, the ability to make that memory meaningful and make that memory tangible is part of what the task of eldering is. Learning how to do that is something we mature into. When Toni Morrison gave us that beautiful word, rememory, what she is referring to is the combination of memory and the ability to remember a thing, particularly a place, and also reification, the making real of something. So one of the things I hear in my interviews with Black elders about their relationships to land is that land is a way of knitting people together in relationships of ongoing care and intergenerational obligation to each other. And that has a historical tie. It comes directly to us from the Senegambia. It shows up in the U.S. as something called heirs property, which is a way of passing down property, not to your immediate descendants, but to your descendants and their descendants collectively and indivisibly, so mm -hmm. that caring for the land and the stories of the people on that land is actually what holds families and others in relationship with each other. One example of that was I, I did an intergenerational interview with the Jernigan family in Bullock County, Alabama, where there are two generations of family members living on heritage land. And it was their first opportunity to really tell each other what it meant to have that experience of creating relationships to land together. And they talked about the ability to look at a building and know who built it and how that was used over the course of generations being a relationship to land that also helped them stay in relationship as a family and gave them kind of a center when there were other kinds of conflicts that relationship to land became a center that has held their family on that piece of land for four generations, each of them getting to see their own contributions to the landscape helps their families stay strong. So that's a challenge in an urban setting for most of us. And yet, there are organizations in the United States that work to help people not lose heirs' property. Heirs' property is not recognized in US law. And so often the property is supposed to be divided up among people or somebody's got to pay the property taxes or the state will take the property away because the state doesn't recognize heirs' property as a form of collective ownership. However, heirs' property problems first surface not in the rural places we most often hear about them happening in, but in cities, in cities across America what we might call in the African-American community, big mama's house is where your grandmother and you know your parents and an uncle and a couple of cousins and some people who are related to you by love who are not related by blood or marriage have lived for a long time. Often big mama dies without a will and she expects that her home and the yard around it is cared for by all those generations of people in order to bind them in relationship with each other. And so that is a thing that we are challenged to think about. Where is there a place on land that we have responsibility for, whether it's our church or our home or the community garden that we're a part of or those two benches in the park that are occupied regularly by you and your three friends? <laughs> and what stories are you responsible for knowing what care are you responsible for providing? What stories are you required to pass on? Because young adults and middle-aged adults are hungry for those stories. 
and also this obligation to report out there. Don't stay in your home, but for elders to get out there and share the stories. I started doing intergenerational Blackland interviews a couple of years ago that came entirely out of trying to interview younger people and having them say, we are not interested in talking to you. We want to hear from our mother and our grandmother and our great aunt, and they don't ever tell us anything. (laughs) So um, I was hearing from people in their 20s and their 30s and their 40s, how vital the stories, elders in their communities are to their understanding of like literally where they stand, where they live. Why do we live in this neighborhood? Why does this neighborhood look like this? How long has daddy owned that garage and what was it before then? Those are really important stories. There are also community stories that we need to tell. There was a group in upstate New York where I did some interviews with some folks who were involved in the local community garden, but this is not a story about gardening. This was an Afro-Latino community. And so what you do is you have a garden, but you need a little dwelling. There needs to be a place where you can sit when it rains and or you have good gossip and or you just need to play dominoes for a while because it's a Tuesday afternoon. And so they built a little casita and the casita more than the garden became the relationship to land. It was a way of holding a relationship to land that holds an historical tradition, because it's a tradition practiced in Puerto Rico. The reason for being for the casita is it was a place for convening people. And elders are the only people who could give permission for that kind of convening. They also apparently, according to the stories I was told, were the only people who knew how to build the casita right. So they had to go and provide some help. And they also had to bring a kitchen chair and bring a box of dominoes. It was a place to meet social needs by holding land in this traditional way, in this traditional looking place. It was a place on land where you not only could find some food you recognize, but it was a place where you could find your people. And it was important for elders to be able to get there and hang out there in order for that whole system to work. And the reason for the community garden was to increase food security and safety in the neighborhood. And elders were the folks who had the capacity to do that. By the way, that wasn't like some social program. That was some people saying, ooh, they need a casita over there. They're trying to build that casita. They have no idea what they're doing. We need to go help those young people. So this tradition, this wonderful activity, just hanging out, younger people hang out, but there's an opportunity again in the later phases of life to hang out again. And wouldn't it be great if you know there was a hangout place in your neighborhood where you can just spend time and you're sure that somebody else will hang out with you? Do you have any other examples of hangouts? Absolutely. One of those stories is a personal story. In terms of thinking about relationship to land, we often forget that cities are on land. They're not on water. So they're on land. Ownership is not the only relationship to land that is available to us. Care for the physical environment is a relationship to land. Knowing who traverses that land is a relationship to land. Knowing why people walk across the corner instead of walking around on the sidewalk, that's part of a relationship to land. And so on my street corner when I lived in Harlem were three guys and their job was to hang out on the stoop of this one apartment building. And they were there every evening and they made sure that Nobody threw garbage under the little tree that was trying to grow on that corner. And they knew who walked by every day. And they would wait for me to walk by in the evening when I got home from work. 
and they would pick up the trash, which helped some other people think about how they wanted to care for the bluff. So hanging out was their relate, because that was their corner. Everybody knew that was their corner. And they described that as a relationship to land because this was the place that they belong. This was the place where they stood or sat and nobody could make them leave. And they didn't need anybody else's permission to do that. And one of the gifts of them having that relationship to land was how much it increased my safety walking home late at night and how much it reminds me that that is part of the role of eldering to be eyes that help a community be safe. I mean, it sounds so ideal for many of us. This has sort of disappeared in our neighborhoods. Lately in my neighborhood, I walk by two houses and they have security cameras installed and a voice says, you are being recorded. It's a very different way of security than what you just described. And I wonder what we can do to bring back this opportunities and this incentives for hangout and replace the recordings. <laughs> well, of course, when there are elders hanging out, everybody knows you are being recorded and not even by a camera, which is going to be objective. <laughs> um, but also you are being seen, you are being watched and you are being watched over are things that can be offered by folks who have a relationship to a piece of land in an urban place. I think about a couple of things around how we can regenerate that. One of the things I learned doing Black Land Project interviews is that the front porch is an architectural importation to the United States by enslaved African people, which is why Black people really believe in porch culture. And when I was doing interviews in New Orleans, one of the things I heard from people is after Katrina and people lost their houses in the Lower Ninth Ward and new houses were built, people moved out of those houses. And they moved out of those new houses that were built just for them and were supposed to be safer because the porches were too far from the street and the houses were too far apart from each other. And that meant that the older people who lived in those homes, which were often intergenerational homes, but the older people who lived in those homes could not do their duty to their community, which was to keep a nice yard and keep their eye on what was happening in it. We all still have that opportunity. I live in a home that doesn't have a front porch, which I didn't realize until I had lived here for several months. And so I'm going to put a glider under the tree in my front yard because for adults to be able to tell their children, get out of my house in that way that you need to when you have grade school age children. They also need to know that there's somebody like me who is both available and willing to hang out and know who their kids are, who feels like I belong in this place and those kids belong in this place and will be out there watching so that if anything happens, I will notice and that those young people will see me as part of their community, this piece of land that we share as a trustworthy observer and partner. So really the act is hanging out. Like teenagers go hang out at the park or hang out on the corner. We can still go hang out at the park and hang out on the corner. In the town that I live in, there was recently an installation of some park benches in a circle, but facing outward. And people in the community said, it was real nice that you all put park benches in but we want them facing each other. Because if we're gonna go hang out at the park, we wanna to talk to somebody. We wanna be able to put our grandkids in the middle and be able to let them play with each other while we're talking to each other. Because hanging out is a really significant binder of community. It's a really significant way of caring for land and the stories of the people who live on that land. And it's a really significant way 
of being skillfully older. It's a beautiful way to put it, being skillfully older. It's part of the skill of becoming an elder is to hang out. Some of the qualities of Black relationship to the land, the resilience, the self-determination, the resourcefulness. How can this be nurtured for healthy aging in the Black community, where often life circumstances don't per se seem to allow for that? So one of the things that's most fascinating to me about listening to Black land interviews is that most of the people I interview don't own the land that they have the strongest relationship with, or they might have collective ownership of that land. The other thing I notice is that it requires people to be active. So an example of a Black relationship to land is maintaining the Decoration Day tradition. The Holiday Memorial Day in the United States comes from an African-American tradition that began after the Civil War of cleaning headstones and telling family stories. And Black headstones are often in Black cemeteries surrounding historically Black churches. If you don't go to clean the headstone, to care for that piece of land in that cemetery, all of those generations of story also get lost. So it means we have to show up, even if it's to do a small thing. Another example I really love is a young person who I work with who studied urban planning. And I talked with Black people about their land stories and about how their story about what land looks like and what urban planning says that land looks like are completely different. And so one of the things that she does is work with urban planners to ask older people how walking paths in their community really look versus what the city has planned. But that also means as older people, we have to answer the door, we have to answer the survey, we have to talk to that perky young person who has all these questions and really strange ideas about how people use our neighborhood. Because we know we've often lived in that neighborhood for a very long time, and we have stories about that urban land that nobody will know if we don't tell. Well, that's a fantastic project, and collaborative urban planning should happen in most communities. I always love when the one-in path sort of overlap the beautifully manicured pathways. Yeah. But one of the other things that implies is in places where elders congregate, whether that's a congregate living situation or a community center or wherever else we all happen to end up with each other, if folks are trying to do programming, and I use that with air quotes, it's not about bringing things into us. It's actually about us taking what we know back into the world so that it is not lost to the world. That means that those urban planners need to have a session where we go out and tell them about what things look like. Yes, and especially elders. So Misty, get you had a question for the audience which relates to today's conversation. I do. So I focus on the specific experiences of people of various ethnicities who are racialized as Black about their relationship to land. And because historically Black people have been prohibited from settling on land or owning land, it was really hard for some people to get their heads around that idea. And I had a question for them that I want to ask you. What one place on land do you feel most connected to? It can be in the city or in the country or in the suburbs. It can be green and full of trees. It can be paved concrete. It might be on land you own, land you own with other people. It might be a public place. But what one place on land do you feel most connected to most responsible for. And Misty, can this be from any part of our lives? 
or in the present moment? I'm asking in the present moment. We mm. often get nostalgic about things in the past and we see things through a rosy glow. But there is some place, unless you are zooming in from a boat, where there is land that you have some relationship to. I see Donna says it's her garden, but Susan says it's the Botanic Garden in Golden Gate Park. Ah, Marcus also has a garden. So gardens are really important relationships to land. And one of the relationships to land that gardening involves is often intergenerational passing of knowledge. People are often participating in community gardening programs to learn things that there are folks who come from rural areas into cities already know. And we need to position ourselves to share that as we know it. And it says the walking path along a creek in my neighborhood where I walk my dog. Those kinds of relationships are really critical. I did some of the Black Lane interviews in Washington, DC. And one of the things people told me about was that people, young people, trash the waterfront in Anacostia and the city doesn't maintain the waterfront in Anacostia because none of those people remember anywhere along the Anacostia River in Southeast DC as the spot for fishing. As older people began to share those stories, younger people became more interested in spending time on that waterfront in Southeast DC. So passing along the stories makes a difference. And now there's a raptor habitat in that space because those stories got shared. Before that time, those stories had been sealed away. The coast in Santa Barbara and the beach at Point Reyes or Sea Ranch. Ryan says, in the present moment, I love the land where a tree my father and I planted when I was six years old continues to grow. It is now taller than a house. I love sitting in its shade. So sitting in the shade of a tree is a relationship to land. A fenced backyard where my friends can play yard games. Recreation is actually a relationship to land and a really significant one. It seems like for many people, it's this place of spiritual regeneration, the shade of a tree, the view of the coast. It's both spiritual regeneration, but it is also regenerative to the land itself, whether we are gardening on that land or we are caring for land that's in our yard or we are making a path by walking that makes it possible for other people to also walk. When we go to the Botanic Garden, we are being part of a public that is asking for that land to be there and for this relationship to be available to us. You are listening to At Home On Air, we are now switching to questions by participating audience members in this recorded live episode. If you want a chance to ask your question, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org and register for the next live episode. Rachel wanted to know, what is the mission of the Black Land Project? It sounds like a place to hold and share stories. The mission of the Black Land Project is to gather and amplify Black people's stories about their relationship to land and place and the regenerative possibilities that come out of those stories. I'm asking for those stories because they are often untold or treated as objects of research rather than ways of understanding. Virginia Hutchins, who I talked about, who didn't like people, but she liked flowers and found herself being the cornerstone of a neighborhood, told me I was gathering those stories, not for somebody else to understand Black people's relationship to land, but to put the stories next to each other and bring back something she didn't know, she didn't understand about her own relationship to land. And so that is the mission of the Black Land story. However, as I do the interviews and community teachbacks, one of the things that's becoming clear is 
what Black people know about relationships to land can benefit all of us. Related to this, Faith Breidenbach asks, are you going to publish your interviews? And if so, will you emphasize eldering? So I will not be publishing individual interviews because the people I interviewed didn't want that. What they wanted was to understand the connections among their stories. And so I am writing what it's like to do these interviews and how it's changed different communities to be able to stake their claim for land. And also rather than pulling out elders, because that's something we do in our culture, we pull out and segregate elders. What I've become interested in is the intergenerational interviews because they provide a long view about Black people's relationship to land and in the individual interviews, an opportunity for three or four generations of family members to talk about their relationship to land in the same place or talk about their relationship to the same piece of land. How do you find your interviewees? How do you connect to people? The first group of folks who I interviewed for the Black Land Project were in Flint, Michigan. And I have used um, a snowball method for gathering other interviews. I ask people, who else in your community should I be talking with? And whenever we get a name that comes up three times, that's the next person who is on our interview set. So. I hear land stories from people who tell me they don't have one, and then the people they think hold really important relationships to land in their community. Well, there's probably also sometimes a confusion what land is, no? So one of the things that's really interesting to me about what the Black Land Project has to offer is that Black people are not confused about what relationships to land are because of the history of being treated as property, Black people are often really clear that land and property are different things. The late Mr. Walter Whitby once says to me, owning land, that's a temporary relationship between you and the government that can be revoked at any time. Now a relationship to land, that's something different. Mr. Woodby, incidentally, his relationship to land was during the Flint financial crisis when housing was going for a song, bought the house next door to him and two houses across the street from him and recreated a really traditional African-American way of living with family in near proximity because what he did was he bought a house for each of his children so that the cousins would grow up knowing each other and all caring for Damon Street together. What a great quote. Property is a fleeting relationship. It's totally true. It's good to remember. Andrea Moss asks, I'm curious if you have met folks who live in group housing, nursing homes, senior communities, etc., who are contributing to that facility's land and any interesting stories about that. I have not had the opportunity to interview more than one person living in that environment. And I think one of the barriers to that is what institutions think older people should be spending their time doing. Um, there's an idea that one should come in and provide services rather than there are services that folks who are in group living situations can still provide to their community. The other thing is many of those folks often have other places where I would connect to them. So a real common relationship to land in the Black community is a shared ownership of a church. Black churches still have mortgage burning ceremonies on the regular, large fish dinners. And people are very clear that they own that land. They are proud of owning that land. All 125 families collectively own that land and care for that land together. Oh, that's really interesting that they really own it on paper or they feel they belong to it. No, they, they own their church. They own the property around their church. They paid off the mortgage for it. They had a ceremony where they literally burned the mortgage. They don't owe anybody else. It's entirely collectively their land. 
And then they get to decide what to do on that land and who gets to be on that land and how that land will be cared for and how that land will shape their community. And those decisions are usually made by elders. So related to this living in communal residences as we get older or care facilities and getting out, how important it is getting out. Rachel says at the care facility I worked at, they spent tons of money on creating a garden in the back, but all the residents wanted to sit near the front door on the quote, you know, front porch. Yeah, so like hanging out is a really important thing. And spaces to hang out and see who's coming and going and being aware of what is happening on the land we live on is important. I also hear in Blackland interviews a really interesting gendered experience around that, where the hanging out that men do is often in public places. And the hanging out that women do is often on the front porch or in the hallway, but they are actually tending to the same thing, which is what is happening outside on that land, who's moving across that land, whose stories are happening in this place. They need two benches out front. Yes. (laughs) It's as simple as this and horribly misunderstood what land and garden is. Annette Thornton asks, Did you witness more desire for this kind of connection with land in place during and after the pandemic in your interviews? So one of the things that happened during the pandemic was that it was harder for me to interview people. A Blackland interview takes about three sessions, and sometimes those sessions are several hours long. So we weren't able to do that as well over Zoom because I also asked to do the interview in the place that the person I'm interviewing with has the strongest relationship to land. So I've done interviews on a basketball court. Um, I've done interviews in some really strange, but I've done an interview in a hayloft. One of the things that I think is really important about the pandemic is that everybody experienced a kind of social isolation that usually is known only by people with disabilities, including elders with disabilities. That suggests to me that what we can learn about what it means to be able to move about and in community on land when we have been deprived of that is something that elders know and that other people are longing for, are trying to figure out for themselves and want some guidance about. So if you are an elder and you're thinking, well, how do I fit into this? I would encourage you to reflect on what was your relationship to land during the pandemic and who needs to know that story? What was it for you, Ms. Tingat? During the first year of the pandemic, I lived in Massachusetts on a little road that walked down to the Connecticut River. I am not a walker, but every day I would walk down to the river and across the river, I could see a farm with the big farm tractor going up and down the rows. And it would remind me that this thing that felt horribly overwhelming was a small thing in the river of life that was going to continue to go on. And also, it made me think about mortality and to talk about it directly. And those were things that other people needed to know. They needed to know that that road that almost no one ever walked on went to a beautiful, peaceful place. And they needed someone who could talk about what it meant to be afraid to die and to have people who you love dying. Yeah, thanks for sharing this. Susan Green asks, do you know of any intentional communities that are owned by Black people? I have seen some communities that young people have tried to start as intentional communities. And I don't know how long those are going to last because those are still young communities. There are many 
historically black towns. In fact, I live in one, I live in Oberlin, Ohio now, that continue to be places where black people have held land continuously for several hundred years and do so intentionally. I live in a very racially integrated place, but the Southeast part of Oberlin, Ohio was historically a black community and remains so to this day because people wanna maintain both the land and the stories of the people from that land. Charlie Deppner comes back to the porches, which are such an important part of public life and connecting to each other and to the land. She talks about something which many of us in the Bay Area at least see is that, you know, there are some nice porches in the neighborhood, but rarely somebody hangs out on them. And the question is, what cultivates a porch-friendly neighborhood or behavior? That's a beautiful question. So there are a couple of things about porch-friendly communities. Porches actually come up a lot in the Blackland Project interviews. Porch relationships are considerably dominantly held by women. So women hanging out on porches is important. Porch culture also is a place where people do exchange. Sometimes the exchange is social, and that means risking being the person who hangs out on your porch and waves at strangers as they go by, because they eventually get used to you and then they stop and talk to you. Porch culture in Detroit involves putting a basket of what you've grown too much of in your garden on the porch. And like a laundry basket, not like a fancy basket. The basket is a symbol and people know they can come up your walk and onto your porch and take what they need or exchange what they have for what you have. And that is something that has been going on for 80 years in hardcore urban areas of Detroit, where when you walk down the street, you'll also see the side yard is full of giant collard greens and the most enormous cabbages I've ever seen in my life. So making a porch a place where things happen is how porch culture exists. There are places in New Orleans where one of the things you do on the porch might be take a bath. So living out on your porch is how you create a porch culture and being willing to be the first person to do that matters. It matters that older people are involved in porch culture because we are currently living in times and places where some people feel unsafe when there are young people hanging out on porches. And so making porch culture normative requires us to step up and hang out on the porch. Yes, after this conversation today, we will become advocates for trailblazers for porch culture, <laughs> that's for sure. I'm already thinking what can be done on my porch, but I'm already using it quite intensively. But what you're talking about is, you know, the activities which happen on porches. That's sort of what architects would call programming to really figure out what opportunities can a place create, what can happen. And yes, some wonderful ideas. I'm going to put my bathtub on the porch. No. <laughs> There's another really great porch story I have. When I lived in Northampton, Massachusetts, which is a place that has a large lesbian population, there is a Black lesbian spades party that happened on various porches in a senior high rise. <laughs> and it was partly because a porch was a pleasant place to be and also because a porch is a way for us to be visible to each other. Yes, it's a place to be seen. Thank you. My last question is, Ms. Get. I know you're writing a book about the Blackland Project. When do you think will this be out there in public? There will be a book soon, and I will make sure that everyone knows about it. The book about the Blackland Project is not just kind of a WPA-style collection of people's stories. It's actually going to be about what happened to people because they told these stories, and also what happened to me because I gathered them 
and shared them with others. Thank you. Thank you so much for tonight's conversation. I have been impacted by it. And I think we will have more conversations because Miss Inget and her partner will also be taking our Aging 360 workshop in November, which is all about how you can make your home a partner in your aging experience. I'm looking forward to this. Looking forward, we have really a wonderful fall program in October. It will be Karen Nemsik who is the director of the housing justice program at United Way in San Francisco in November. We have Joe Good, who is a dancer and choreographer and who will talk about his experiments in aging and his body as an age-friendly home and how to adapt to it. If you have others in your community, friends and family who are interested in hearing fantastic conversations like tonight's speaker, Miss Tinget. Please spread the word. That's the best way for us to grow our community. So thank you all. And thank you, Miss Tinget, for your work, for your way of thinking and for creating community. I will see you all on the porch or some other land you love somewhere soon. Thanks for <laughs> spending the evening with me. Thank you. This episode of At Home On Air was produced by the At Home With Growing Older team. We could not host these conversations without the generosity of our marvelous and passionate guests and hosts. Thank you for sharing your personal and professional insights. Thank you to our live audience for your thoughtful contributions. To subscribe to this podcast and for more information, visit us at athomewithgrowingolder.org. Thank you to our sponsors, Rhoda Goldman Plaza, the jewel of San Francisco's assisted living and memory care communities, and the Walnut Foundation, a San Francisco family foundation. At Home with Growing Older strives to educate, inspire, and connect people across generations and disciplines to re-envision and improve the experiences of later life. Don't forget to subscribe and tune in for the next episode.